everybody. Absolutely fantastic episode of the Bitcoin Show with Nathaniel Whitmore, NLW, the host of the Breakdown Podcast, one of the best news podcasts, you know, news audiobooks, if you will, about Bitcoin, uh, TradFi, macro, everything in between. We talk about the impact of the Bitcoin ETF, the possibility of an Ethereum ETF being approved, and how the inflows might look for that one compared to the Bitcoin ETF inflows. We talk about unit bias with the ETFs, talk about when retail is going to get back into the market for Bitcoin, ordinals, Coinbase, MicroStrategy, mining stocks, future Bitcoin equities, CBDCs versus nationalizing stable coins. It is an action-packed discussion. He is uh, so on point, so sharp. So I hope you enjoy this. The show is brought to you in partnership with Trust Machines. Trust Machines, of course, focused on growing the Bitcoin economy by building applications all on Bitcoin and its various layers. For more information on Trust Machines, you can follow them at Trust Machines Co. on Twitter or visit TrustMachines.co. We're actually conducting a little bit of user research through a Google form that you can see on X platform on our account. If you can't find it, hit me up on Twitter on X platform at P.O. Vincenzo underscore, and I will get it over to you and you can contribute. Hope you enjoy the show. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Tuesday, February 20th, 2 p.m. Eastern time. This is the Bitcoin Show, and we are joined by a very special guest, his second time on the show, this time with video, NLW himself, Nathaniel Whitmore of the Breakdown Podcast and a bunch of other really great uh, you know, content uh, avenues. Uh, NLW, Nathaniel, welcome to the show, and thanks for coming again. Yeah, excited to be back. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. We have a lot to dive into. Last time you were on the show, we talked about what the ETFs could mean for Bitcoin. Now we have some data that we can go off of to you know, just kind of dive into what they do mean for Bitcoin. Quickly, I want to make sure everybody knows the show happens every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern. It's about available on Apple and Spotify podcasts, Twitter spaces, X platform video, and YouTube, of course, for the video feed. Today's show is brought to you in partnership with Trust Machines. Trust Machines is focused on growing the Bitcoin economy by building applications on all on Bitcoin and its various layers. For more information on Trust Machines, follow them at Trust Machines Co. on Twitter and visit TrustMachines.co to learn more about the future of building on Bitcoin. Real quick, they're also looking for feedback through a user research form about Bitcoin and DeFi. So check out the pinned tweet. Clemente has it pulled up on the screen. He can get a link going on the YouTube feed also. Any feedback would be appreciated and it will help the way Trust Machines pushes DeFi and Bitcoin forward. Uh, so Nathaniel, just to kind of get into it, I want to talk about a lot of different things. I want to talk about the Bitcoin ETF and what we've kind of seen thus far. I want to talk about the potential of an Ethereum ETF. Uh, talk about when retail is going to get into Bitcoin, because you've been talking about this a lot. And I have some theories from my end too on the NFT side of the crypto market. I want to talk about Bitcoin equities uh, and also some crypto companies that are slated to go public next year. But first, I have to ask the man himself, what is the breakdown for today, Nathaniel? I, I didn't see if you've posted a breakdown show yet today what is today's breakdown i have not yet uh it's it's actually uh it's a so there's a big dust up yesterday with um coinbase moving support uh away from from lightning basically and uh and it sort of paired nicely with a a twitter conversation um from russell Lacong about whether people in africa prefer preferred uh you know tether and things like that to bitcoin yep. and what that meant um, and so, you know, I, I'm digging into that. I think it's a it's a meaningful conversation to have, uh, you know, outside and around uh, the, the sort of price hype and excitement that we've had with the ETF. Um, you know, people are constantly trying to understand 
what Bitcoin is for. And it's okay for that to be an evolutionary understanding based on real evidence in the real world and, uh, and, and have it be sort of diverse and different for different people. So that's what we're talking about today. Absolutely. Well, I'm actually glad that you brought that up. That obviously wasn't on my schedule, but I'm curious. So to me, when I think about it, from what I know, it seems like Africa and South America seem to be the continents that have countries that kind of need Bitcoin the most just because of histories, uh, their histories with currency debasement and currency issues. Am I on track with that or am I out to lunch? For sure. But I think that so, so I, I don't mean this to sound at all pejorative, but like if you spend any time in these places, the idea that Bitcoin is going to be a more relevant daily thing than uh, than something like a, a synthetic digital dollar, you know, that's that's close to a U.S. dollar on digital rails, is just it's insane. Like there, there's no universe in which that wouldn't be the case, and it's I don't think it's at all diminishing to Bitcoin, right? So if you look at these markets, if you look at like Argentina, for example, the, these are places where dollars have for an incredibly long time like played the release valve role from from local currency uh you know in in argentina it's the blue market rate is sort of the the official the unofficial rate versus the government's official rate and just everything that can be done in dollars is done in dollars so having access to something like uh you know tether or or whatever you know that that's easily accessible uh, you know and and is basically filling that same function um is going to make tons of sense for people they're not concern necessarily in a day-to-day -day way with savings technology, if that's sort of what you view Bitcoin as. And frankly, the people who spend a bunch of time, like starting with uh, using something like Tether, often find their way to Bitcoin as a savings technology for the part of their money that they have the privilege of saving. Just for a lot of people, there is no savings there. It's completely sort of, you know, day-to-day, week-to-week. And so what, what they want is a functional technology that, or a functional currency that looks exactly like the the, the what are, they're already using just in a faster way. So, you know, the the dollarization of the global economy, uh, it, you know, and, and the fact that people continue to opt into that um, is it's much more of an indictment against local currency, local fiat currency regimes than it is against Bitcoin. And, and like I said, I think that if you talk to people who have been inside those systems and who actually have access to save part of their uh, part of their wealth, they often find their way to Bitcoin. Um, as well. So I don't know. I, I think it's, like I said, I think it's a, a, an important conversation to have, but I think that um, people should not be so surprised that, uh, that the, where, where those preferences lie, just based on sort of the, the reality of, uh, of the world as it exists today. Absolutely. And I want to talk a little bit later about, you know, central bank digital currencies versus like, you know, uh, worldwide dollarization through you know, stable coins like USDC or, or Tether. Uh, on the on on this subject, last thing on it, you're you know, it seems like it's about lightning versus anything else. Does it on the Bitcoin side, does it matter if if lightning actually works? I know everybody sort of wants it to work, but couldn't another L2 just end up getting built that you know serves the purpose better? So I I just I don't I don't know if I view it as super important for lightning to reach mass adoption versus just like you know something to reach mass adoption on the bitcoin side when it comes to having a cheap instant transaction method for bitcoin i think that probably you know most a lot of people would answer that question in a you know what what time scale are we talking on right if i think that if you put the question to people ultimately would you choose like does it matter to you that lightning specifically you know, hits mass adoption or something hits mass adoption, they're probably going to opt for something. Um, the reason that people are, I think, reason, you know, meaningfully or, 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 or kind of reasonably concerned with, uh, you know, lightning having, you know, fewer options to, to grow and develop, uh, 
which is what some of these institutional decisions can amount to, is that it's right now it's the best contender for that, you know, in, in a lot of ways. Uh, and it, it sort of, you know, for, for many people represents the closest thing to sort of Bitcoin principles. Um, and so, you know, even people who ultimately are agnostic about what solution wins there relative to, uh, to, to sort of being a, a, an authentic sort of native Bitcoin solution that's not, you know, captured by some sort of, you know, centralized third party. Um, there's still a reason to want, you know, Lightning to have more of a chance to succeed and to have more support, you know? So it's kind of like, I, I think it's more nuanced than the, than the Twitter takes, um, you know, but, but certainly ultimately, I, you know, I, I, I resonate also with the, uh, the sort of idea that like, look, what, what matters is, is Bitcoin being able to be used however Bitcoin needs to be able to be used. And, you know, whatever solution ends up being the winner for that uh, in a way that sort of, you know, keeps with the things that make Bitcoin unique relative to other uh, currencies is, is fine. Appreciate the insight. So moving on to the ETFs, last time you came on the show, it was before the ETFs actually went live. Now we have, you know, 10 or 11 ETFs actually trading every day. Uh, we actually saw Bitcoin hit a 52-week high an hour before, uh, you know, the TradFi markets opened this morning, which I got a kick out of because the way I think about it is that the crypto market is just making the ETF folks pay a little bit more money, you know? Um, and so, you know, the number that I see getting thrown around is $500 million of inflows per day. Uh, you know, obviously, GBT. TC's outflows have been a story and, and, you know, there's been kind of like a few different discussions there, but just at a high level, I want to dive deep, but at a high level, what is your impression of the impact of the ETFs so far? Has it been, you know, like a higher, uh, or, or like a higher impact than you expected, or, or what is your impression here about six weeks or however many weeks it's been since the ETFs actually got approved? I mean, I think at this point you'd have to be intellectually dishonest to see this as anything other than a bigger success than basically the biggest bulls could have imagined. Yeah. Um, we are just barely scratching the surface of this entirely new institutional bid. You know, it is just one, the the amount of sort of like the, the overall assets under management is, you know, it, it puts it in totally rarefied air. Two, the fact that we're a month on and flows are increasing, not decreasing, is totally unlike other products that have existed. Um, three, the fact that, you know, Whatever sort of the early narratives or concerns around grayscale are, it's just that the, the, these lines have now diverged, and it's very clear that sort of the the new inflows in are not just a uh, being they're not even close to being matched by by outflows from from grayscale. So it's it's just a net you know aggregate of of new uh, buyers or at least you know new allocations from from existing buyers, um, and and I think that like what we need to keep in mind too is that this is all without these products being super widely available, right? You still have huge brokerages that refuse to offer them. You don't have any sort of, you know, uh, main street, you don't have big networks of registered investment advisors, you know, actually putting these things in portfolios. You're just starting to see some of these firms start to kind of add allocations to, to Bitcoin as part of a, as part of sort of other balanced portfolio products, but that's only incredibly nascent. And it's more on the sort of like recommendation stage than actually having products with it. So we are basically at the point where the institutional bid for Bitcoin through the ETFs is is probably about as low as it's going to get. Uh, you know, especially if you if you move outside the vagaries of sort of any particular cycle moment, and um, and it's still massive. You know, I, I think it's just a, it 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 is just officially a a, a macro asset inside TradFi that has um, you know huge space, and and I think it's just beginning. 
Yeah, I mean, Vanguard, I have my IRAs with Vanguard. I'm in the process of moving them over to Fidelity because iBit is blocked uh, at Vanguard. A friend of mine uh, has Merrill, and he said that he also cannot buy iBit. I didn't even know about I feel like the Merrill uh, situation didn't really get um, you know, publicized on Twitter the way that Vanguard did. So that's fascinating that you bring that up. You talked to, or you discussed with Scott Melker the four-year model, the previous sort of like four-year Bitcoin cycle and your expectations moving forward, I find this to be one of the most fascinating mechanic or dynamics with the ETF in play now. Um, a lot of people are saying that they think that we're going to see shorter cycles. A lot of people are, are saying that maybe the, the kind of bust component of the cycles won't be as you know big as it has been previously. Do you think that we just have a totally different kind of four-year landscape uh, cycle-wise for Bitcoin moving forward now that we have these institutional inflows really coming in, like you said, as, as strong as we could have ever imagined? My sort of base case on this is that we're going to see different types of cycles cohabit cohabitating uh, at the same time. And, and so what I mean by that is that I think that there are some interesting dynamics that will persist around the four-year cycle. I think that the having as this locus event, which supercharges um, narratives and, and media coverage more than anything else at, initially, right, and serves as this sort of reminder of this big blaring contrast between Bitcoin as this this asset with a fixed price supply and reduced you know issuance over time as as opposed to you know sort of you know prof profligate government money blah 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 right like that every four year having cycle becomes a, a a moment where that story gets told not by Bitcoiners but by mainstream media and some portion of tradfi people and it sort of distinguishes Bitcoin once again then you have you know call it six to nine months later. The sort of the 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 actual supply shock starting to hit and find its way into the market, you know, in the in the form of the sort of mining dynamics, and that's historically been when you've seen sort of the you know the the big price increases, uh, you know, kind of post having. Um, I don't know if that exactly will be the same in terms of driving price. I do think that this institutional bid is this fundamentally different force that we've never had before. That is going to have its own dynamics that don't necessarily fully or exclusively respect those things. I wouldn't be surprised, or I would be cautious to assume that uh, that cycles, are, you know, will will go out the window entirely because of that. You know, like, look, part part of a when you have a, a product that's very easy to enter, it's also a product that's very easy to exit, right? And um, and you know, the the allocate like part of what makes this uh, such a better allocation for people now is that they it can move at the same speed as they can with any other asset. Whereas perhaps before, part of the reason that they weren't allocating to Bitcoin is that they didn't want to get stuck. It's too too much of a challenge, right? So I, you know, I I don't think it's as clear cut as sort of you know the the super cycle kind of things that we you know talked about last time. But it really is a different force, and uh, and you know we're seeing that now in the fact that. Retail is supremely not here. Not only are they not here, they're actively disinterested still. Yeah. And you know, fifty thousand went off without a a, a second <laughs> glance from from retail. And yet, it, it really is uh, a continued phenomenon and growing interest. You know, from from the institutional set. So I think it's going to be weird and blurry for a little while. I think that the things that make the four year cycle, um, you know, that that have shaped it, especially in the period that surrounds. Uh, the the having are, are not going to go away uh, immediately, but there's this new force that we don't exactly know how is going to interplay with with the rest of the market. Absolutely. And on the retail side, since you brought it up, we we're going to get to it. But uh, I think I heard you say on Scott Melker's podcast that 69K you feel like might be the starting point for retail. 
like in, from my perspective, given how much nobody cares at all, what do you think of the possibility that a hundred K will be where retail? Absolutely. The way that I think about it is, is, uh, is to me, it's almost like there are psychological contenders for a spot where, <clears throat> excuse me, retail might care again. I think, you know, for me, 50,000 seemed like a, you know, this big, chunky, nice round number. You know, Bitcoin's only been above 50,000, you know, 150 ish days. Yep. <clears throat> Excuse me. Sorry. Yeah, no, no worries at all. No worries at all. Um, and when that went off without being even a little bit relevant, the, the next obvious one is do we need to get to an all time high before people pay attention again? But it's entirely possible that we do, that we get to 70,000. And the burn from the last cycle and the skepticism are so high that retail just continues to not care. And and to your, you know, there will be at some point where number go up technology has hit a point where they they just can't not pay attention anymore, and uh, and it'll drive some amount of interest. But um, it is entirely possible to me that it's that it's not even something which would have been you know absolutely unheard of the past cycle getting to a new all time high before uh, before they were paying attention. Yeah, I, I view 100K. I just think that's like the number that at that point it won't be able to be ignored. But given the, the way that you pointed out, nobody cares at north of 50K right now, like literally no one. So why? They're going to care at 60K? To them, it's still the price is down, right? And we do man on the street uh, content, like, you know, YouTube shorts content. And if you go to Washington Square Park in New York City right now and ask people about Bitcoin, ask people about Solana, they won't know what the altcoins are. And when it comes to Bitcoin, they'll say, isn't the price down? So I don't know. I just don't see a world where even at 69K, you see like a huge pile in from retail. But uh, I appreciate your take on that. Um, in terms of Bitcoin versus other crypto assets going into this cycle, given the Bitcoin ETF is approved, one thing I wanted to uh, bring up is, so we had James Safert on our morning podcast. James Safert, of course, one of the ETF analysts from Bloomberg. He said that his bet is that there's a greater than, call it 75% chance that this year in 2024, you get the Ethereum spot Bitcoin uh, Ethereum spot ETF approved um, and no other crypto assets for, for quite some time. Uh, have you thought about you know the possibility of a, a Ethereum ETF approval, especially since um, BlackRock has filed for it, and we know that what their track record is. Um, and how do you think that that sort of impacts this cycle? So, a couple of things. I mean, maybe even just to, to follow up on, on your last point, like it's not impossible to me that we get to 100K and retail starts paying attention, but they're like, ah, it's too high now, and they're just out. You know, like the dynamics are really different this time. The yeah. I, I think that we really can't. Uh, oh, oh, overstate how brutal 2022 was uh to the to the sort of like the the reputation now i think there are some uh surprising upsides to that too that that could be sort of countervailing forces but um when it comes to other assets in the cycle in ethereum so i think I, a couple things in terms of the actual approval itself the the reason that it seems like they should is that it's the exact same damn argument about why they lost in court with with bitcoin so it's like you know are they, are they really going to be able to uh, avoid that it feels to me like it's almost going to entirely be down to Gensler. You know, like if you look at the five member, uh, you know, group of uh, the SEC commissioners, two are definitely not going to vote for it because they wrote, you know, strenuous. They, they're incredibly angry that, that Bitcoin got passed. Two are absolutely going to vote for it because they think it's insane that it doesn't exist yet. And so it's just going to be Gensler. And to some extent, it's going to be about how petulant, you know, he wants to be, which fights he wants to pick. Does he want to go fight another court battle around this? Does he want to run out the clock on on a term? You know, I mean, there's, there's sort of all these different 
reasons that he might be thinking one way or another about it, but I think it's almost entirely going to be down to him. What is for sure is that if these approvals don't happen, uh, there there will be they will be back in court, you know, facing the same sort of you know scrutiny, uh, facing an even more uphill battle given the way that decisions went uh, in, in Bitcoin, because I think it's going to be seen as you know as a as a fairly like uh, thing. Um, and again, sort of a product of their own making by the fact that they approved the Ethereum futures ETFs to be an entirely different conversation if for whatever reason they, they hadn't approved them, but they have. Um, I think that uh, Ethereum uh, will fit nicely with the institutional thesis uh, that that is going into the Bitcoin buy in the sense that if you sort of get way outside of our circles and everyone who's in in the crypto space, it is a really easy narrative to be like, okay, cool, Bitcoin is digital gold and Ethereum is everything else that crypto can be. So those are our two assets. Those, you know, from an ETF standpoint, if I want exposure to everything, right? If I if I just think that crypto is only interesting from a, as, a, as a savings technology, great, I got my Bitcoin ETF. If I'm interested in that, uh, you know, this sort of digital gold narrative, plus, I don't know, all the other crap that crypto might be, like, boom, there's Ethereum. And, and I'm being reductive, but only from the standpoint of sort of showing like what I think the mindset is going to be for a lot of people. It's just... It's a very comfortable, natural, uh, gets you really everything in those two little packages and won't require all that much thinking, you know? Now, that might mean that Ethereum, an Ethereum ETF dynamic is a little bit different, that it's perhaps, for example, a more cyclical. You know, like I can see something happening where the sort of Bitcoin ETF is, is a little bit counter cyclical if people actually are, you know, if institutions are actually using it as, uh, as a hedge and sort of as a as a portfolio diversifier, um, you know, it might look differently in in sort of times of stress. Uh, you know, it might have a little bit, it might have bigger legs as sort of a a risk off type of asset. Whereas I think Ethereum's ETF like will be very risk on, uh, you know, pretty much all all the time, just in in the Wall Street mindset. Now, a Bitcoin ETF could also be just totally risk on when push comes to shove in terms of how actual investor behavior is. It just, I think, has more of a chance to 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 also play some different roles or at least have some meaningful portion of the market for whom it is playing those different roles. So it kind of serves as, as, as a counterweight to, to you know whatever market dynamics there are. Yeah, love all the details. So we had a gentleman, Fred Kruger, on the show a few weeks back. He's an ex-Wall Street guy, PhD in math from Stanford. Do you follow this guy on Twitter, Fred sure. Kruger? Uh, frequently, frequently quoted on the show. Oh, awesome. He He's awesome. I mean, that guy is prolific right now with his content. He talks about how Wall Street wants the king. Wall Street wants the number one. Do you think that that'll play a big role in whether you know any Wall Street person is buying the uh, Bitcoin ETF versus the Ethereum ETF? Yes. I think that it's more likely that some meaningful portion of people will only be interested in Bitcoin just because they just want one thing. And if they're going to choose just one thing, they're going to choose the one that has the longest duration, you know? Um, but I, I do, I just think that they're, they're so comfortably different from a narrative perspective for, for wall streeters that, uh, that it'll be really easy for them to sit next to each other in a portfolio, which by the way, isn't so different from how new entrants to this market have always uh, operated when it comes to these two assets. You know, there's sort of like the the Bitcoin thing and then the Ethereum as sort of like the representative of everything else.
Yeah, makes sense. And you brought up unit bias a little bit. You talked about maybe uh, this time around, because if Bitcoin's at $100,000, the number will just be too big for people to process. Do you think about the pricing of the ETFs at all and whether the unit bias there will positively or you know not impact Bitcoin at all? Because you know if you can buy iBit for $29 a share, d- does that impact anything? Do you, do you care it, about that? It could. I, th- I think that it's probably a... Well, one... None of our concern about unit bias has ever actually really played out all that much, you know, except in so far as um, unit bias does less to deter people from buying like expensive assets and more to encourage people to buy shitty cheap assets is kind of how I would put it. Right. Like people do have a sense that if they're there to get rich, the ability to like two or three X on your Bitcoin is just different than, you know, 100 X on your shit coin. And so that's where I think unit bias plays out is if that's the thing that you're looking for. Um, I think that it, but I think that, you know, when it comes to sort of like the, the slow and steady flow of new people into to Bitcoin, it really hasn't been a, a big barrier. However, I do think that probably having it, um, having it represented in, in sort of this, you know, the shares, which make it uh, an easier unit that look similar to, you know, the rest of your portfolio, like it may break a little bit of the like, how much of a percentage of a Bitcoin am I buying? You know, because you're just buying shares that have exposure to that. I'm not sure, but it, it, you know, certainly for the sort of the the type who's buying it, you know, just as you know, not particularly interested in in the whole space. It's just sort of a you know a, a piece of it that might matter less. Absolutely. And on that subject, uh, and you've kind of talked about this, uh, like you know, Bitcoin kind of leading the cycle. Um, do you think the ETF will? put Bitcoin in a situation where even though historically, at least if you look at last cycle, some of the you know lower priced assets, the shit coins, if you will, have outperformed Bitcoin from the bottom of the cycle to the top. You look at like Solana last cycle, right? From like $4 to $260 or whatever it went to versus Bitcoin from 3K to 69K. Do you think that that's different with you know institutional inflows into the ETFs this time around? So I think that bull cycles always have three dynamics uh, sort of happening simultaneously. One is the Bitcoin narrative that always leads things off. It always starts first. Uh, and um, and for the last couple cycles, it's been largely similar. It's been institutions coming to realize, you know, it's, its capacity as a digital gold and, and what that means, or, you know, some version of that, right? Paul Tudor Jones, great monetary inflation thesis, you know, the 2020 version. And, uh, you know, the, the ET, listen, the ETF is sort of like a, part and parcel of this, but there are also narrative reasons why people are interested in buying the ETF that are that are sort of that. So Bitcoin is, you know, always has that sort of piece. Um, the second part of, of the bull market is whatever the sort of like enfranchised crypto people thesis is for that cycle, which is an insider baseball game, but is a more sort of sophisticated upmarket insider baseball game. So I think about in 2020, we had the great monetary inflation thesis happening at the same time as you had DeFi summer, right? DeFi summer was for a very small handful of, uh, of, of folks that, you know, that had sort of were, were, you know, could deal with the barriers to entry, uh, because it was, you know, the complexity was super high, you know, at, at that time. And that was a big driver, right? So, you know, so, okay, you have Bitcoin going and then you have sort of, you know, DeFi summer. And then you have sort of the like the third part, which was actually bifurcated in the last cycle. And the the third part is generally it's sort of like the all the other shit, right? And and, and again, I don't even mean this pejoratively, uh, yeah. although a lot of it is is, is bad. <laughs> it's sort of like the the stuff that has the capacity to just be like ridiculous number go up stuff. Shib um, shib yeah, last cycle exactly right? exactly. Now, what was interesting about last cycle is that um, 
Whereas in 2017 with, with ICOs, it was all SHIBs, right? More, more or less, not the creators of projects. There were more creators of projects that were well-intentioned that we, than we sometimes remember from back then. But, you know, by and large, the, like what, what retail had access to was all SHIBs. NFTs added a, a, added sort of this fourth rail last time around where there was this totally separate thing for retail where a, a meaningful percentage of folks who are in that market like literally didn't pay attention to anything going on with Bitcoin, Ethereum, like at all. Like it just was sort of totally secondary, totally outside their purview. Um, I think that when it comes to this cycle, uh, when I see how I see these things as sort of being different or, or whatever, um, I think that uh, Bitcoin is likely to have perhaps less of a fall off effect as we get deeper into the cycle than it has before because of this institutional bid. There's just so many new layers of you know, new buyers that that to, to be unlocked thanks to this ETF, uh, that I think that you're going to have a much more persistent sort of Bitcoin uh, narrative leading this thing th throughout the cycle. Um, uh, whereas, you know, it, it tends to sort of fade as other things kind of come up, uh, you know, in the, in the past, um, just from a narrative perspective. Um, I think that when it comes to what the enfranchised folks inside crypto are going to be super excited about, it's an interesting moment where it's still like there's a lot of contenders for that, right? Um, I think that there's open questions around what the new DeFi narrative is, you know, uh, narratives are going to be. Um, I think real world assets are certainly a sort of contender for uh, for for things that it sort of people in the know think, and it also sort of bridges into institutional, which is interesting, right? Like part of the thing that was so interesting about Larry Fink getting into this is that he just absolutely obliterated the Bitcoin versus blockchain divide. I mean, he just he curb stomped that in the first set of interviews after they they uh, they they sort of filed for the ETF. They you know tokenized everything, right? He, tokenized journalists everything. kept trying to pin this, like you know, oh, you must not actually care about Bitcoin. You must be interested in that. He wanted it all. He wanted Bitcoin as this thing, which was a digital goal that was you know blah 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 blah. So you know, talking like a true Bitcoiner, but he also wanted to tokenize all the things, right? Um, you see this play out a little bit right now, like assets that are clearly related to. Some of the real world, uh, you know, uh, uh, tokenization type stuff, real world assets like Link, obviously, is, you know, there's there's sort of, you know, in, uh, people who are interested in that. Um, then there's going to be like the, the 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 shit. There will always be like the random things. I mean, we're seeing it a little bit with like AI themed tokens. Uh, you know, that's kind of like a, a you know a shitcoin narrative for the year. Um, I I don't know what what I mean. I think one of the most interesting things to watch, even if you're not in it, just as a, as an observer, is what you know sort of like the second or arguably second and a half or third cycle for nfts are going to look like uh i think that's going to be a major what happens in this cycle for nfts will have huge deterministic impact on where they end up on, on the other side of it um and and i don't yet have super strong opinions or, or thoughts on what that's likely to be and one wrinkle there is what if traditional art collectors that would literally be buying picasso's basquiat's and jackson pollock's decide that they actually care about nfts what does that do right well, that, I mean, this is the thing is like NFTs could turn into a, a niche, like, you know, digital art gold, you know, thing they could they could have a resurgence as a thing where, you know, uh, listen, it's not, it wouldn't be crazy to me if you said I'm from the future and two years from now, the way that retail got back into crypto was actually, they just hated all the crappy, you know, like tokens and stuff. 
but there was still some interest in these sort of digital arts and collectibles and, you know, prices came back down. People didn't think they were going to buy houses with board apes anymore, but it was like a, a dynamic that they liked. And that's where retail decided to, to play around in crypto. Like that doesn't seem insane to me as, as one of the possibility sets, but I, I do think that, you know, whereas last time it was this sort of explode, you know, the Cambrian explosion and all the possibilities of all the things it could be this time around will be a little bit more representative of what it actually is, at least for now. And, and I think that'll be interesting to see. It's funny you say that because I've been saying this exact thing to my friends that are Bitcoin people. And, you know, maybe some of them also have some altcoins too, but they, even though they hold those and some of them might have six figures of Bitcoin, they're totally out on NFTs. And the way I presented to them is last cycle was all about, well, they could do this and they, you know, this could happen. But the reality is a lot of the people executing, you know, they weren't committed in the way that they presented themselves. And then obviously all the issues that happened with Three Hours Capital and Sam Bankman Fried and the list can kind of go on really flushed a lot of things out. But like you're pointing out, if, you know, some media company that has a lot of fans like Barstool Sports, or a sports team or you know some sort of brand that or a collectibles organization that has real brand loyalty gets into reasonably priced digital collectibles that could be a pretty big accelerator i would think for whatever chain those collectibles end up on a lot of volume could come from that i'd imagine i don't know i mean we can move on but yeah yeah no i, I it's interesting i mean i like i will note that one of the things that i thought was interesting kind of throughout 2022 really until the uh, the SBF dagger in in the heart of the the whole industry. Yeah, I would say that the NFT communities were a little bit more resilient than I think the average person would have guessed uh, coming out. Like there there was a long period, even with diminished prices, where you know the the people who had always said that they were in it, you know, for things that weren't just number go up, kind of stuck around more than you might expect. So I, I think that the question that you know I, I actually having spent a lot of time with um, with with sort of you know the sports team and and NFTs and all those sort of things, I, I find myself more skeptical of these use cases. I actually think that like internet native communities that organize around these things and have sort of like totems of affiliation are seem like a more uh, likely long term thing. But at the same time, like I, I don't know. I, I what I know for sure is that NFTs represented the first true break from the rest of the crypto industry, where you really could see something as distinct even though it was part of the same underlying technological rails it really just was its own phenomenon that you could care about or not care about but it all had almost nothing to do with the, the rest of the space and and vice versa sure when you say distinct like online communities maybe video game communities like online gaming communities would that make more sense to you it could be or just just i mean the the i don't think that it was an insane pursuit to try to build a community from the ground up on the basis of of a thing, you know, kind of organized uh, around an NFT. But you know, who knows? I mean, listen, the the gamer animosity towards NFTs was a <laughs> another interesting phenomenon. And and gamers had animosity, I guess, to like buying in game assets and in game currencies, you know, a decade ago, and that became the norm. So we have seen a history of uh, that kind of pattern playing out, where it's rejected because it's new at the beginning, and then it changes. Speaking of NFTs, a uh, Bitcoin ordinals is a new wrinkle for Bitcoin going into this cycle that just flat out did not exist last time. And the volume, I mean, when you look at the numbers, it seems like it's pretty real, and it's going, you know, it's going to stick around. How do you think about ordinals uh, going into this cycle? and how they might impact Bitcoin and Bitcoin mining and you know just volume on the Bitcoin blockchain. I, I mean, I think that they are going to be a meaningful part of the conversation. I think that even if you don't care, you're going to be drawn into conversations around, uh, around fees, 
which you know will people will argue vociferously from the side of like fees are bad because what you want bitcoin for is a relatively low cost blah 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 blah, blah which is a reasonable position versus on the other hand you know like the fact that fees are 20 percent of of uh minor revenue now relative to where it was in the past is like potentially a really good thing so i i think that they're here as a as a phenomenon especially because i wouldn't be surprised if we start to see um more iterations of these things that that look sort of uh, unique and different and not just sort of like a different version of nfts yeah. um you know I, the, the, there are some different sort of uh attributes of, of these things that i think will make them appealing for different types of uh of uses or different types of people so i don't know i i, th I think i would be surprised if they just sort of dissipated entirely um and i think that even if even if you're sort of totally off the the art piece if you're a Bitcoiner, you will be part of the conversation as it relates to uh, to, to, to fees and, and sort of the, the structure of security in the industry. Yeah, very hard to predict, uh, but definitely, in my opinion, not going anywhere. Uh, so moving on to like Bitcoin and crypto equities, uh, Coinbase. Coinbase is custodying, I think it's something like 70 or 80 percent of the Bitcoin, uh, you know, from the ETFs. Um, can you kind of go a little bit deep on what that means for Coinbase itself? Well, so it's it's actually even with that, it's still a, a relatively small line of business from a from a financial standpoint. Um, but it's obviously one one that could grow, given that that it's sort of very early on at this stage. I think that um, my guess is that we'll start to see this cycle. Uh, crypto equities have some ability to move independently of one another rather than just be sort of lumped as if crypto is doing well they're going up and if crypto is not doing well they're going down now there will be some unescapable dynamics right if crypto is going down obviously it will reset the prices for everything in the space but i think that like you know especially like one of the big winners from the standpoint of public perception after last cycle was coinbase yep. it's been here forever i mean it's it's still standing from the, from an institution it doesn't have a whiff of uh impropriety anywhere like it just looks like a really well-run company they had to make a ton of painful layoffs they maybe grew too fast like you know there there are all those sort of things but like i i think that wall street has an immensely higher respect for coinbase as an actual company right like whether they whatever they think about crypto or not than they than they did you know a year ago a year and a half ago and i think that that's meaningful my guess is that you'll see some of that uh that that sort of same type of discretion, you know, company, company, you know, company by company kind of uh, analysis maybe take place uh, elsewhere in the industry, again, rather than it just being like all mining stocks move this way or, or that way. Sure. And how do you think about an individual holding, you know, Coinbase stock versus spot Bitcoin? Like why would someone invest in Coinbase versus just buy more Bitcoin? I, I mean, there's a there's a bunch of reasons. You know, if you're if you're a purist and you just want exposure to the underlying asset, uh, that that's great, but the you know uh, one Coinbase or something like it represents like a, a hedged bet across the entire industry versus a bet on any any asset. You know, like it's kind of like a more uh, sensible way to 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 hold a bundle of crypto. You know, than sort of like these bundles that have some like weird allocation. You know, based on percentages and market caps and stuff like that. It sort of represents beta exposure to the whole space. Uh, you know, um, but it, but perhaps in a shell that you're have more confidence in because of of their trajectory or their history. Um, I think it's also a chance to bet on theses, right? Like, you know, you could be interested in buying Coinbase if you're interested in sort of a layer two thesis, if you're interested, inter if you're interested in the institutional bid thesis, you know, like it seems like a, a one of the companies most likely to to benefit from from what comes next. So, you know, I, there's there's all sorts of reasons why people might want that versus just exclusively Bitcoin. 
Um, so, uh, you know, it, it's, it's just sort of all, all, all investment options in a, in a increasingly diverse set of options. Absolutely. And how do you think about Coinbase versus MicroStrategy? I think that the, I think the micro strategy is a lot closer to just a Bitcoin ETF proxy than than Coinbase is, um, at least as current. I think that if you're investing in Coinbase, it's because of you know a, a set of theses that aren't just strictly based on the performance of Bitcoin. Whereas micro strategy is a little bit more directly a bet uh, in that ecosystem. Fair. And when it comes to mining stocks, how impactful do you think the having itself? will be on mining stocks moving forward especially now that we have things like ordinals you know increasing the volume on the bitcoin blockchain like i'd love to know how you think about mining stocks for the rest of the year here in 2024 pre and post having yeah i mean i think that the what you're seeing what what it what it appears to me that we're seeing is that um the having is going is is mattering in the context of investors figuring out what different companies cost basis is so rather than treating all miners monolithically which is like what you know the the temp like probably how they moved you know call it a, a year ago year and a half ago as we're in sort of the depth of the of the the bear market um, now you have sort of analysis looking at like how much does it actually cost you know like what price does Bitcoin have to be for company X versus company Y to be to be mining at profit I think that that is going to you know to the extent that investors are getting more sophisticated they're going to look at that sort of stuff they're going to look at the trade offs between scale efficiency all, all these sort of things and and it, it could have a, a fairly big impact on uh on which sort of uh companies that you know the market gives more access to capital to awesome and so moving on to future bitcoin equities uh circle uh you know people believe is going to be going public or they may have even officially announced they're going public next year i, I think people believe that kraken is going to go public um I mean, it's pretty significant to me that we're going to have two new companies, both of which are kind of household names in the crypto sector. Circle definitely is. Um, how do you think about this in the landscape of the different Bitcoin and crypto equities? Uh, you know, with Circle, I kind of wonder, is this going to be a mainstream DeFi organization moving forward? Like, what do they get to after stablecoins? How do you think about Circle and Kraken potentially going public? So let's talk about Kraken first. I sure. think that that Kraken fits more in a template that investors know, right? So like we were just talking about why someone would be interested in Coinbase. I think that the the logic is going to be similar with Kraken. Long duration US-based exchange that doesn't have the sort of like the stink of uh of sort of these offshore exchanges around them, you know, has has successfully navigated this market, continues to build out new products, blah 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 blah. I could see people being interested in Kraken relative to Coinbase strictly from a sort of like a market opportunity standpoint, because it's like, okay, well, you know, the, the smaller players potentially have more room to gain, right? To, to, to grow. So, but I think that the, the logic and the, is going to be much closer to sort of why someone would be interested in, in Coinbase right now, as opposed to sort of some new phenomenon. I think circle is a little bit different. I think circle is, uh, is really going to be, uh, uh about, um, a bet on stablecoins in, in the U.S. and what the stablecoin system is going to mean, um, and I think that the a, a lot of the price discovery is going to represent investors um, making bets on how big a deal stablecoins are going to be in the the, the larger U.S. system going forward. Um, so I think it, if it pops and it goes well, I think it's going to be you know uh, an indication that there's a sense that stablecoins are going to play a much bigger role in the in the larger sort of like you know dollar financial system going forward. 
And that's a perfect segue for the last thing I wanted to cover, which is you've been discussing, you know, CBDCs versus nationalizing stable coins, you know, gun to your head. If you had to make a bet, do you think the United States in the next call it 15 years will move forward in the CBDC direction or in the nationalizing stable coins that they, they don't create themselves direction? I'd bet a significant amount of money that we never see a US CBDC, or at least not in the the predictable future as such. I just think that it's um w- one it it has for whatever reason become this unbelievably outsized political issue, which means that you have half of the country who's never even thought about these issues who's vehemently against it. And so it's kind of like I mean dead, you know, strangled in the cradle in some ways. So to the extent that you cared about that and were I mean I just don't think anyone's going to expend the political capital to try to win that argument back. Um and so I you know I I think the CBDCs are sort of, you know, d- dead on arrival as it, as it relates to the US, especially because there is this other thing just sitting there, which is that, you know, people look around and all of a sudden these, you know, US dollar stable coins are settling, you know, ridiculously large volumes already uh, working well. They're all trying to edge towards more, not less respectable, right? You've seen an interesting turn recently in Tether's narrative and rhetoric where, they uh they are continuing to emphasize the fact that they're sort of like the world's you know uh, digital dollar versus just the U.S.'s, but they are certainly uh you know emphasizing their bona fides with U.S. law enforcement in a way that they didn't before. They're making some different decisions than they might have before. They're clearly positioning for a world in which uh you know the, the U.S. government has more of a relationship with uh with dollar stable coins. And remember, like the U.S. has a long history of not fully nationalizing financial innovation, but but kind of making it making private sector innovation work with the with the sort of dominant uh, you know system. So I, I can see for sure some sort of weird hybrid where you know the the a circle or a USDT has a client base of one that is the U.S. government, and it's sort of deeply integrated in a way that uh, that that it's not now. Um, and I think that you know what I will be interested to see is whether there is an increase of uh, sort of narrative discussion like we had from, I think it was Waller at the Fed uh, last week, talking about how uh, US stable coins potentially extend the dominance of the dollar uh, into another generation. I think anyone in the crypto space who's been paying attention resonates with this and has been saying this for for years, that even in a world where maybe there's more concerns around sanctions and the weaponization of the US dollar, Right now, definitively, it is the case that the dollar is the most in-demand currency anywhere in the world. It is not just the, the world's reserve currency from the standpoint of you know big trade and, and official things. It is also just the preferred currency in uh, in back alleys and markets everywhere, just is the case. And the folks who are using it as such care less about sanctions on Russia and stuff, right? That then then maybe maybe those sort of you know big central banks in terms of where their their holdings are. And so this thing, this technology, which just radically increases the ease with which people get to already use that system, to me, just very obviously could extend the sort of US dollar hegemony into a, into another another full generation, multiple generations. And I think at some point, the US political establishment probably decides that that's a good thing and that they shouldn't be so short-sighted about it. Um, and it might be as simple as getting past this stupid stablecoin legislation where you know they they've they've decided that both state and federal regulators can have a have a hand in this and and they're fine with that but you know that that my my bet uh, i guess to sum it up is 
No U.S. CBDC, almost certainly a closer relationship between the U.S. government and uh, and some, you know, or multiple U.S. dollar denominated stable coins in the future. And I, my follow up question was going to be whether that, you know, like uh, dominance by U.S. dollar stable coins like Tether and USDC defends the U.S. dollar's position as global reserve currency. It sounds like it does. To me, 100%. Now, it, it also arguably weakens further the Fed's ability to control the dollar supply. But I think that the 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 reality is, is that the euro dollar system already makes that nearly impossible, right? It's it just the, the amount of dollar equivalents that exist in the world that aren't actually US dollars that the Fed, you know, the Fed doesn't really, it doesn't even have any insight anymore into how many US dollars there actually are in the world, much less have the ability to actually change that supply a, a, on a dime. You know, it's just sort of not not really the 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 way that they enact change. So I think that the ultimately the um the 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 rational trade-off of everyone using dollars and all the good things that that means, it will outweigh uh less control over the dollar system, you know, because people realize that they just don't have that much control already. Fantastic detail. Uh, last question, Nathaniel. Is there anything that we didn't discuss today? Any questions that I missed that you think are critical to talk about? You know, right today, February twentieth. I don't think so, man. I think I think that they, we are still at the very beginning of uh, of a cycle, which is going to which is going to really shape a lot of the 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 rest of uh, crypto's sort of near term life. I think that there are. Just these huge outstanding questions that maybe we didn't have before. Um, when will retail come back under and under what auspices? And, you know, I think is a, is a really meaningful question. I don't think it's as clear cut as, as it used to be, which is just enough pressure. You know, like, look, I mean, I'm sure that everyone listening has experienced this, but like the conversations with people when you're in the crypto industry are just different than they were you know, pre-Luna, pre-FTX and all, and all those sort of things. It's just, it, it, I mean, we're, we're back a decade to crypto is just for criminals. Um, and unfortunately, it's, you know, there's more evidence of that now. So I don't know what, what retail looks like. I think that the, the, the shape of the entire NFT space is going to be uh, really, really determined in some ways by what happens this cycle, how much it looks like the last one versus there's new territory. Um, you know, I, I don't think it's a, a binary of like, does it exist or not? It's, it's more just in what capacity exists and for whom. Uh, I think that DeFi has is the thing that faces the biggest regulatory hurdles uh, of anything. What DeFi actually gets to do this time around is not going to be based on sort of the cleverness of people building interesting DeFi primitives. It's going to be based almost entirely on legal battles that are, that are fought in courts. Uh, and so that'll have a major impact. You know, and then there's Bitcoin just kind of humming merrily along, uh, you know, recruiting new people in the in the form of these sort of institutional buyers. So it, it really does feel like a very seismic change uh, between the past. And I think this period sort of like of the, the collapse up into FTX and then now sort of from, you know, the, the ETF onward. I, I've said this numerous times. I think that the the moment that will be viewed as halting what could have been the utter destruction of the industry. Uh, will be BlackRock announcing their ETF uh, uh, proposal. I, I think more than anything else, that'll be seen as the Larry Fink putting his <laughs> his his body between uh, you know more crypto chaos. I, I think that if if that hadn't happened, if that hadn't shifted momentum, it, it could have looked very different. Now, I don't think the crypto would have gone away. I think that part of what makes Bitcoin so strong is that there's now millions and millions of people who will never sell their Bitcoin for any reason, and that creates a a, a floor and a defense that's totally unlike basically any other asset. Uh, but I do think that when when it comes to the sort of the, the way that history will see 
this last cycle, there'll be this this hinterland period between FTX being you know exposed as as sort of this massive Sam fraud and uh, and the BlackRock uh, ETF proposal announcement where things could have gone a lot of different ways and all of the forces were competing all at once, um, you know, to try to drive them in the direction that they wanted. So uh, we're on the other side of that now and uh, and trying to, to, to kind of face forward or project forward on the basis of what happened before that cycle, I think is going to be harder than it's ever been. And those two events only a year apart, more or less, right? And I mean, it's 20- six, six months apart, really. Unreal. Uh, and not, yeah, I mean, I, I, cause I think it wasn't, I don't think it was just the approval of the ETF. I think it was just the, the, the filing. Yeah, yeah. The filing. Um, so it was, it was really a six month period now fucking brutal six month period, <laughs> which is absolutely awful. Uh, but good time to buy. Yeah, it was, it was, uh, incredible conversation, Nathaniel NLW. Um, look, so obviously the breakdown podcast, uh, your podcast, which if people aren't listening to this, they totally should. I mean, it's, it's essentially a newsletter that you read. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's 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 a news analysis. It's very different than I think it's something that like it, podcast isn't even exactly the right frame. It's it's a news analysis show, you know, where yeah. it's 15 minutes a day on like, you know, what the actual news is, but then sort of my take on it. Yeah. So if you search the breakdown on any podcast platform, it's going to come up. Uh your YouTube channel right here we have pulled up, which is just Nathaniel Whitmore Crypto. I see you did a video interview with Lynn Alden, uh absolute badass. So that must have been a good one a few years back. Um, and is the website nlwcrypto.com? Uh, no, breakdown.network is where you can find all the information. I think that this is out of date. <laughs> okay, there you go. Break- if you, if you, breakdown.network. Awesome. And anywhere else you want to send people? Nah, it's just, I, I'm NLW everywhere. And breakdown.network has links to, to anything you could possibly want. Incredible. Well, Nathaniel, th- thank you so much for joining again. The second time on the show, we hope to have you on again in the future. As usual, great insight. And uh, yeah, just can't wait to continue listening to your show, to your podcast. Cheers, guys. Appreciate you having me. Absolutely. Have a good one. All right. Cut him off at the end by accident there, ladies and gentlemen. NLW, Nathaniel Whitmore, absolutely crushing it as usual. This has been the Bitcoin Show. We do this every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern time. Show was brought to you in partnership with Trust Machines. Trust Machines, of course, focused on growing the Bitcoin economy by building applications all on Bitcoin and its various layers. For more information, check out Trust Machines on X platform on Twitter. That's at Trust Machines Co. Or visit TrustMachines.co to learn more about the future of building on Bitcoin. If you want to support this show and support our partner, Trust Machines, then check out the pinned tweet on the Twitter spaces. Uh, Clemente, the producer of the show, will have it on screen. Also, uh, we are looking for a feedback through user, some feedback, I should say, through user research uh, about Bitcoin and DeFi. So just check out that pinned tweet. We got the form pulled up right here on YouTube. Also should mention that we have another awesome guest next week, one week from today, Pete Rizzo. A uh, long time, you know, a journalist in the cryptos, really the Bitcoin space. Uh, very few people know are like on the beat of Bitcoin for as long as Pete Rizzo has been. So that will be absolutely electric. Also his second time on the show. Can't wait for that one. Hope you enjoyed today. Make sure you check out Trust Machines. Make sure you check out the breakdown uh, with NLW, with Nathaniel Whitmore, today's guest. Uh, Catch you guys next time. Thank you so much for listening. And 